Okay, welcome back to Labor Law Radio. I'm Michael Tracy, attorney at law, your host. Uh, the second part of the show here, we're continuing with your questions. So the first time we talked about uh, some independent contractor stuff, some wrongful termination stuff, some paycheck issues, things like that. This uh, segment, uh, as promised, I'm going to pick up this uh, rather humorous item that a uh, listener sent in relating to the Bill Handel show. Bill Handel, very popular radio talk show host, uh, you know, 1.5 million listeners. He's a uh, big, uh, big-time radio show host, and I'm a... Uh, not as quite as popular as him, so I get to make fun of him. That's uh, that's the joys of being uh, being smaller. In any case, somebody spotted this in his uh, his broadcast from this last week. Essentially, he's he's a you know he's an attorney, but he's uh, mainly a comedian. He does uh, funny little things on his show, and one of the things he does is talks about current news items that are are humorous. And one of the news items was a man back east in New Jersey or New York, something like that, who was arrested for paying underage girls money in order to insert pins into their buttocks. So he would uh, pay them apparently thousands of dollars and take these pins and insert them into uh, into their bottoms while he would uh, please himself sexually. So, uh, needless to say, he was uh, arrested and uh, it was uh, illegal. But in any case, the reason why the uh, the listener sent it in is well, let me let me play you uh, the clip here from from Bill Handel, and you see if you can uh, figure out what uh, you know why they sent it in. It's pretty obvious. Had he done this with this, an adult, it wasn't a sexual had assault. Had he done this with someone over eighteen, for example, our new intern, then it's then it is completely <laughs> legitimate. Are you over eighteen? She is. Just like two days ago. Would it be considered? Somebody's, Michelle, can you go find some pins? That? Exactly, Alice. I want to talk to you after the show about some pins and money. Okay. She's over eighteen. Stop it. All right. Gross. 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 All right. Old man. I'm an old if, man. <laughs> Thank you so much. If you want to see, she that. always reminds me of that. Okay, so there it is, and you know the question the listener had sent in. Was, you know, because this is on the job, was that sexual harassment? And that's an interesting question. And it basically, it really turns on whether Bill Handel was joking or not. Uh, hopefully he was joking, but with knowing Bill Handel, you, you never know. So uh, the legal analysis is, you know, obviously, you know, there is something called a quid pro quo for sexual harassment. That's the most blatant type of sexual harassment. And also, the rarest to see. That is where a boss, an employer, comes up and says, uh, employee, I will pay you additional money to perform some type of sexual favor for me, uh, or I will demote you if you if you don't. Uh, in this case, uh, Mr. Handel was uh, apparently offering her several thousand dollars in order so he could uh, go please himself by inserting needles into her body. Uh, that would be a, an obvious quid pro quo, and that would clearly be uh, sexual harassment, and she would be entitled to uh, large sums of money. Hopefully, uh, Bill Handel was not serious about it, nor was there any of his hosts about it. So the question is, given that they were that they were probably joking, and hopefully they were joking, so given that, was that sexual harassment? Is it sexual harassment to, on the job, joke with somebody about 
um, you know, that type of sexual conduct? That's an interesting question. And it recently came up in a Supreme Court case of uh, Lyle versus uh, Warner Brothers. In that case, it was a female writer on the show Friends. And the writers and the producers of the show Friends would get into these brainstorming sessions and say all sorts of obscene and derogatory things about women, about blacks, gays, who, whoever it was. They were, they were very insulting. Um, but uh, in particular, uh, the stuff that they had raised was about, uh, was about women. And, you know, the writer was a, was a female. So she had raised a sexual harassment claim. Ultimately, the court said no, that even though all this, these horrible and terrible things they were saying about women uh, were, you know, clearly inappropriate in the normal workplace, because of the creative environment of friends and, you know, the, the writing environment and, you know, how the producers brainstorm about ideas and they talked about the, uh, the Harry Met Sally orgasm in the restaurant and yeah, you know, I mean, so it it got into a lot of sexual innuendo and sexual content, and that was the day to day norm for these uh, writers writing about this, uh, you know, coming up with ideas for the show. I mean, it, obviously they they can't put that kind of content on the show, but there's there's tons of sexual in, in, innuendo and and uh, things being implied that uh, that went on that, in that show, a very popular show. So anyway, the Supreme Court uh, held that no, that when it is expected for your job that coming into that situation, you're going to be immersed inside this sexual uh, innuendo environment, then you shouldn't expect, you know, come as a shock that these types of things are being said uh, around you. So if the Bill Handel show is uh, immersing its uh, its interns in sexual innuendo and sexual uh, uh, banter back and forth about their stuff and the interns would never expect any of this stuff, then uh, presumably they would... Uh, they would not have a case, but, uh, you know, given, uh, I don't know all the, the circumstances of the case, but it uh, sounds like she's a very young and experienced person who didn't, uh, who wasn't aware of what she was getting into. And, uh, you know, I mean, if it is pervasive and it is, uh, it is uh, enough, she might, uh, she might have a claim for uh, sexual harassment. So, um, in which case, you know, he, he does, uh, refer, have an attorney referral service, uh, handle on the law.com. Maybe she can go there and get an attorney to, uh, to sue him. But there's also other labor issues that were uh, were raised in that uh, in that segment, and I'll give the uh, listeners a couple seconds here to see if they had spotted them themselves before uh, before I get into them. So the first one should have been pretty easy to spot uh, because the uh, intern said that, or, or Bill Handel said that she had just turned 18 two days ago. Well, it's probably an exaggeration. So if she did just turn uh, 18 two days ago, chances are she was uh, working as an intern prior to that, and there might be a minor issue if she did not have a work permit and she was still uh, enrolled in high school. So there could be a, a, a child labor violation there. So in addition to being a sexual harasser, Bill Handel could be a, an illegal employer of, of minors, but probably not the case. This is all just in, in good humor. The final one uh, is actually fairly common in the entertainment industry, and that relates to interns. Now, I have no idea whether she's an unpaid intern or not, but a, a lot of interns in the entertainment industry are unpaid. And I see a lot of questions from people wanting to hire, you know, quasi-hire because they're not actually going to pay them anything. All these things they try to do to get out of paying interns any money. They say it's the opportunity of a lifetime. This intern's going to sign a waiver saying they don't want minimum wage and overtime. They have 50 
people who all want this job and none of them want a salary, can't they not pay an intern? And the general rule is that you must pay interns interns according to standard wage an hour, minimum wage, overtime, meal breaks. All of the standard rules generally apply to interns. There are some exceptions, and you have to meet all of these uh, requirements in order to be exempt from California's labor laws for, for interns. It must be part of a bona fide academic uh, institution in, in some type of bona fide training program. It can't simply be uh, the radio show wanting a uh, wanting an intern. So it has to be part of a, a bona fide training program for a you know some type of skilled profession, and it must not specifically benefit the employer. It has to be sort of a, also a benefit to the employee. It has to be training. The employee has to be learning something. So they can't just be filing papers and. And bringing the, uh, the the show host his uh, his coffee and no oh, thanks for that coffee by the way no that's uh, in in any case um, they they can't simply be uh, filing you know answering phones stuff like that it has to be a learning environment and the final thing is is that they can't displace the normal work of an employee so even if you didn't fire somebody to fill this if this type of work would normally be done by an employee then that is not going to qualify for a bona fide internship. So, you know, if you're doing it through your school program in the the law field, there's a lot of these where law clerks do externships and they go and they work for a district attorney or the judge. And they're essentially learning a lot about the law and receiving credit through their school and it's supervised through their school. That is a bona fide internship. But inside the entertainment industry, a lot of so-called internships are indeed uh, illegal. Now, very few people actually end up suing for them because they feel that they're going to be blacklisted or they don't want to uh, to uh, tick off the uh, their their employer. But uh, that's uh, that's a separate issue. But legally, that may have been a uh, a labor violation if if Bill Handel was not indeed paying that uh, that employee. So, in any case, enough of. Uh, Enough analysis of uh, Bill Handel's show. If any of the uh, listeners uh, are astute enough to spot any other labor violations on his show or any other uh, talk radio shows out there, please point them out to me, and I will do a uh, legal analysis of the uh, labor and employment practices in the talk radio field. So thanks for that. Very interesting. Glad the uh, glad the listener was uh, listening to, well, my show mainly, but... Uh, also, uh, Mr. Handles to spot that. So, okay, back to our more legitimate questions. This one I like. My employer has mandatory lunch meetings once a month. They do not pay us for them because they say that since they provide a free lunch, they don't have to. You see this a lot where employers come up with all sorts of creative reasons why they don't need to pay you for something. But the law is that any time that you are spending you know, any of your time for the benefit of the employer, that is something that you'd rather not do yourself and you're doing it for them, then that is hours work. They need to pay you for that time. And a lunch meeting where you have to sit here and listen to the boss talk or listen to some presentation or pretty much do anything for the employer. I mean, you know, play on a computer or watch the office or, you know, wait for the phone to ring type of thing. Even if they give you a free sandwich out of the deal, that's not really relevant. You are entitled to uh, your wage for that. Now, the employer is allowed to say beforehand 
that for this one-hour lunch meeting, we're only going to pay everybody minimum wage. But in most cases, they don't do that. Uh, and if they don't, then you're entitled to your regularly hour, your regular hourly rate of pay for the entire hour that you're there for the lunch or for whatever that mandatory meeting is. We see this a lot uh, larger companies, not just for lunch meetings, but uh, weekends and uh, other things like that, where once a month they have a training meeting or a company integration plan or, you know, something like that where they require all the employees to get together. And, you know, you basically have to sit there and listen to the big wigs talk for an hour about uh, who knows what they're talking about. In any case, you are entitled to be paid for that time. There have been some uh, pretty good class actions if, you know, they have 100 employees come in for the weekend or something like that. Uh, and if they, you know, if they do it on or even if they don't do it on a regular basis, uh, there have been some uh, some very good cases for that. But uh, you are entitled to be paid for it and always be very skeptical of employers when they tell you what the what the law is. Well, the lunch is free, so we don't have to pay you for it. Well, you know, rather humorous. That's not what the law is. And anytime the employer is telling you something that uh, that sounds fishy, it uh, it probably is. So an interesting one there that I, that uh, that I like. Next question, kind of a typical one that we get. Uh, we covered this a lot, but I'll cover it again because I, I people still send these things in, no matter how much uh, how much we talk about them here, no matter how much I put them up on the uh, on the website. I was not given any type of raise this year, not even a cost of living raise. I thought that it was required that they at least give us a cost of living raise, but I did not even get my annual review. Okay. That it actually raises a lot more issues than it seems on its face. So I mean, if you're familiar with the California labor law, and a lot of the listeners out there know quite a bit about California labor law. So sometimes I get into some advanced topics, but that's because uh, there are some labor law aficionados out there that uh, really like this stuff. Uh, in this case, you know, you're not entitled to raises. There's, there's no God-given right in California labor law that, or federal law or any law that entitles you to a raise. Again, that would be a contract issue. If you're a member of a union, you may have a periodic raises that automatically go into effect. If you would negotiate an employment contract that had these raises in it, then, you know, obviously that's going to apply, but that's not the vast majority of people out there. So as a caveat, uh, just about everything I talk to implies that you don't have a contract already in place that that requires that. So the only thing that could possibly give rise to this mandatory type of raise that you have is if there was some type of implied contract. We talked about this in wrongful termination, and it's very difficult to prove an implied contract. That is, there had to be some actions or statements made by the employers that led you to believe that you would be entitled to this raise, and you didn't you did or didn't do some other action based on that reasonable belief. So a good example of it would be is if the employer said, you know, you don't need to worry about finding work anywhere else. Don't submit your resume anywhere. We're going to give you cost of living increases every year, and you may even get more than that as a bonus. If the employer was stupid enough to say that, it may be enough to create an implied-in-fact contract. You probably need some past history of these raises. So you know, if they said it on the first day that you were interviewed, you know, much less of a case than if after five years of regular cost of living increases, they specifically told you don't apply anywhere else. Uh, we want you staying here and we're going to have a job for you and we're going to continue to give you raises uh, as long as we have this uh, this job for you. That might be enough to uh, 
to raise the issue of an implied in fact contract. It probably would be an implied in fact contract. Anything less than that is going to be very, very difficult. So even if it's in their employee handbook that says each year you will receive an annual review, that doesn't mean that they have to give it to you. There's no contract there. It's simply them stating what their policy is, and the employer can change their policy at any time for any reason or no reason at all, and you know, unless you have that contract in place. So even if it says in their employee contract, we're going to give you an annual review, even if it says they're in their employee contract, uh, in employee handbook that you're going to get a cost of living raise, they can simply say, well, this year we changed it. And unless you had relied on that or there had been some something else that, you know, something more than it simply being in the employee handbook, um, you know, you need something more. And so you probably don't have a, a good case for that one where it is simply, uh, you know, stated in, in, in this case, you, know, you didn't even say it was stated in an employee contract. So there is no law that requires cost of living raises, and there is no law that requires that you be given an annual review, and the employer can skip your annual review or make it late or give you a poor review all without any uh, any reason at all. So sort of a, we get a lot of these questions uh, you know about things that people wish were in the labor law, but they uh, but they simply are not. Okay, moving on to the next question, a uh, little bit here with the labor board. The labor board issued me an ODA, but the employer still will not pay me. What can I do to get my money? Now, an ODA stands for Order Decision Award. It's basically a, a judgment from the labor commission. So this person took their unpaid wage claim or you know whatever it is to the uh, the labor board. They prevailed and can't collect the money. The employer isn't paying it. Now, that's a frequent problem with going to the labor board. You know, you can win, but sometimes it's a pyrrhic victory because if you can't collect the money, it's uh, it's not really going to do you a lot of good. Now, first of all, it is a lot easier to collect money than a lot of people think. Some people think a judgment is worthless and they, you know, they're never going to pay you. I mean, if the company has money, there's a very good chance that one way or another you can collect that. I mean, there are firms out there that assist you in collecting this. I mean, if you have an award from the, the labor board, you can uh, ask the labor board to help you collect it. And they may, uh, depending on what their resources are, frequently they can't uh, because they're too busy with uh, with all their other cases. But the big reason why I don't take things to the labor board in – there's very, very, very few times that I, I take things to the labor board. Generally, I sue the person in court directly, and that's largely to get individual liability. You can you, – using federal law, you can get individual liability of the owners themselves, and that gives you a lot of leverage in terms of actually getting payment out of them. So if there is a corporation there – and if they don't have any money and they're going out of business, your you know piece of paper from the labor board isn't going to be worth a whole lot. You can try to collect on that judgment. You can force them into bankruptcy. But ultimately, if there's no assets in the company, it doesn't do you any good. So fortunately, federal law is much more protective of actually recovering these things because under federal law, you can sue the individual owners and agents and officers of the company directly. That is, you can take the owner's house, you can take his car, you can take his bank account in order to pay your money. I mean, obviously, if he declares bankruptcy, some of those things would be protected, but you do have direct access to uh, the owner's assets. Now, this thing shocks a lot of business owners in California. So if you're a business owner listening to this show 
and you feel that your corporation is going to protect you from all sorts of claims, it does. It protects you from you know debts that you had for the uh, for the company if you had uh, you know had a company credit card or if you had uh, leased some equipment through the company and hadn't co-signed for it. That it will protect you from. I mean, your company, your corporation can declare bankruptcy. Your corporation or LLC or however you have it structured can declare bankruptcy. But for certain type of federal wage claims. You will not be protected. So it doesn't matter if you're a corporation. It doesn't matter if uh, you know you had an attorney do it or or anything like that. It's well established law that corporate uh, owners and officers can be held personally liable for unpaid federal overtime and unpaid federal uh, minimum wage, and that's very uh, very critical. And that's why you know with this new federal overtime law that was uh, recently passed. A lot of people in California, it's not, well, it's no big deal. You know, we already have a California minimum wage, which is already higher than that as it is. California minimum wage is currently seven fifty an hour. So we didn't really need that federal minimum wage law. It doesn't mean anything to people in California. But in fact, it means a great deal to people who are actually making minimum wage because their remedy to recover that is frequently to sue a company that doesn't have any money. And they simply will bankrupt it, and it's very difficult to collect against uh, against a company that doesn't have any assets. Versus the federal law, now with you know the federal minimum wage going up, you can sue and get essentially you know you'll get a little less money. Federal minimum wage is a little less than California, but you can still get that full federal minimum wage against the uh, employer. And federal law also has a liquidated damages clause for both overtime and minimum wage. So that means you essentially get double your damages. So if they don't pay you minimum wage under federal law, then you not only get minimum wage, but you get twice that amount as liquidated damages. And you can recover that directly against uh, the individual owners of the corporation. And that's why that is such a critical piece of, uh, uh, you know, of labor law and, and why a lot of the stuff we do is, uh, you know, in federal court or with, uh, with federal law. Next question very similar to something we had covered a couple, I think, on our first show. I'll read it to you. My employer overpaid me $2,000, approximately $2,000 in 2006. Now they want all the money back, but I've already paid taxes on it. Can they sue me for the full amount? You know, we get uh, we get a lot of questions like that. This is a, a complex issue when it crosses tax years. Now, if you remember from our first uh, episode, our first show, the employer is allowed to recover money they mistakenly paid you. Now, in general, that can go back for a period of two years, sometimes four years, depending on whether you were under a written contract or not. Most people, are, as we said, are not under written contracts, so they can go back a full two years that the employer can go back for this mistake and get this money back from you. And this surprises a lot of people because it was the employer's mistake, but the law is that you're not allowed to snap up uh, the benefit of a mistake just because you happen to be lucky. There's no lottery in the law. So the employer is allowed to recover this money. The problem that comes up is, as you know, this reader is, a, this listener is questioning is taxes. Now, you, you made the $2,000 last year, you paid the $2,000 uh, in taxes, and now the employer wants the money back. Technically, you do have to give that money back, and then you have to file an amended return and get the money back from the government. So it can really create a lot of hassles for the employee. Now on the employer's side, they have to get that money back and then they have to file an amended return so that they can credit you back 
your Social Security contributions, because Social Security contributions work very differently from your uh, federal withholding tax. You know, a lot of that is, you know, technical stuff that that most people aren't going to be concerned with, so I'm not going to uh, discuss it in too much depth. But in any case, it's a very complex problem for the employer to solve as well. So, you know, you're sitting here, well, this is going to be a big pain in my posterior and why do I have to deal with it? It was their mistake. Chances are you can use that uh, to your advantage. And, and for $2,000, it's probably not worth it from the employer to uh, recover it. I mean, if you sit down and discuss it with them and go through all the issues, you can probably negotiate it down uh, pretty substantially. You know, obviously, like I say, I get a lot of cases because employers do do this. They threaten to sue somebody. The person comes to me, and then I go looking for all sorts of labor violations there. I mean, minimum wage, overtime, meal penalties, pay stub violations, all these things they have to put on your paycheck stub, you know, there's almost always something that you can find and use that to uh, negotiate a a favorable settlement. In in a good number of cases, we've actually had the company pay money in addition to uh, forgiving uh, forgiving the debt that was in there. Okay, final question here. So this employee signed a release for severance payment. Uh, You know, when, when you leave the company, sometimes they give you something that says, I sign away all my rights and you know, you're going to pay me six weeks pay or three weeks pay. And so in any case, he writes, I, I signed a, a a release for severance pay. Now looking over your website, I think I am due overtime. Uh, do I have any rights? Maybe. Severance agreements are very, very complex. But the general rule is that you can't waive overtime and you can't waive minimum wage. You can't release these things unless there's a bona fide dispute about it. So, I mean, obviously, if, you, if your attorney is negotiating for you and you come to a settlement agreement, you can work it out so that settlement agreement is binding. It also depends on whether you are covered by federal law. So under federal law, private settlement agreements are not allowed. The settlement agreement needs to be approved by a court or by the Department of Labor in order to be binding. So if you did reach a private settlement agreement, uh, you know, in this case, it is, you know, a severance agreement is considered a private settlement agreement, probably not going to be, I mean, it's not going to be binding uh, for federal law, and probably not going to be binding for California law, because there was no bona fide dispute. I mean, you didn't know that you were due these wages, even if it contains a clause in there that says I'm releasing all my known and unknown issues and stuff like that, uh, still wouldn't be binding. And that's, again, why you know federal law is so important. A lot of people think California law is much more protective of employees than federal law, but I would much rather sue under federal law than California law. California law does have some, you know, minimum wage is, you know, a little bit higher. It is a little bit easier to get overtime under California law. But if you ever have a choice between California law and federal law, you're always going to want to uh, uh, to take federal law because of all the additional protections uh, for employees. But in this case, you know, we, we get a number of cases where people have signed uh, settlement agreements and, you know, it's not you can't get out of every single one of them. You know, there are, are certainly binding settlement agreements that are out there and valid and there's nothing we can do about it. But, uh, you know. They're fact specific. I'd have to look at the uh, you know specific specifics of this particular case, but it's entirely possible that uh, that you can get out of that settlement agreement and go back and get your overtime. That looks like uh, about all the time that we have uh, for today. Covered a number of your questions, brought everything up to date. Uh, next week we'll be back on track covering you know, major topics of uh, labor and employment law, and look forward to uh, seeing you next week. Thanks. This broadcast has been a commercial advertisement at the law office of Michael Tracy, not meant to be legal advice. It's not sort to establish a client relationship. 
Any statements made during this broadcast are also swear or not guarantees of any outcome. Michael Tracy is licensed as an attorney only in California.